that the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now this verse tells us uh, about the Ark of the Covenant. This small box uh, measures about 45 by 27 by 27 inches. It's a rectangular box that is covered with gold. Um, on top of the box are two images of cherubim. Cherubim are angels. Um, they sort of guard what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant is more important here, uh, although uh, the cherubim resembles the throne of ancient Near Eastern uh, thrones of other kings. The Israelites were told that they build the ark, and when they build the tabernacle, and then when they go from place to place, they will put the Ark of the Covenant at the most sacred location inside the ark of inside the tabernacle. So, in fact, it is so holy that two of the sons of Aaron uh, were killed because they were not careful around it. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? What's inside it are three things. Number one, it contains the tablet of stones. The tablet of stones contained the law that was given to Moses by Yahweh in Mount Sinai. Number two, there was inside it the pot of manna. It's like a, uh, it's a sample of what God gave to them for 40 years, feeding them with this kind of bread, manna. And third, inside it was the staff of Aaron. You remember the staff of Aaron? People were, um, were concerned if only Aaron was the legitimate priest that God uh, wanted to be for Israel. And so they, they rebelled against Moses. And so God has to put a stamp on it by making sure that the staff of Aaron, the dead piece of wood, come back to life by making it bud, blossom, and produce a ripe almonds. Now this is very interesting because this Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's throne. That means the presence of God is in this throne, is in the Ark of the Covenant. Now why is this significant for the Israelites? Since God is invisible, the Ark of the Covenant was his visible throne. That means as long as uh, the Ark of the Covenant was with the people, they were confident that God's protection was with them. This sort of was an objective and concrete assurance that God is alive and is near. Let me continue the story, 9 and 10. It says, And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God among you is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. A lot of sites here. But the following events will, will give the people an understanding why the Ark of the Covenant is important to them. Now, God through the Ark of the Covenant was about to do something. He was about to show his power. We have to remember uh, the Israelites at this point were the second generation, so sort of the millennials. So the first generation all that went out from Egypt all died in the wilderness. And for 40 years, every one of them died one by one, either through judgment, plagues, punishments, pestilence, you name it. All of the first generation died except for Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. 
that means at this point in time, when they are about to cross the Jordan River, it's the second generation. And they did not know the crossing of the Red Sea. They did not witness the plagues in Egypt. They did not witness their slavery from Egypt. They have heard stories about it. Most of this second generation were born in the wilderness. They must have, they must witness again the presence of God and how God will make wonders. And this Ark of the Covenant will symbolize that. Now, this act, the following action of God, will make them understand that God is alive. That's what it said in verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Because when they crossed the Jordan River, what the story is saying is that the flow of the river will stop and the people of Israel will be able to cross the Jordan River all the way to Canaan. This is very interesting. What this means is that it will be a declaration that God is alive. Yahweh is alive and is real. Not just some distant, powerless God. He is real and he's powerful. He's more powerful than the gods of Canaan. He will prove that he is God, not just in Egypt or in the wilderness, but he is God over all the earth. Now, in the ancient Near East, understanding is that gods are territorial. You only, you only have power. A certain god has only only has power over a certain piece of land. So there's gods in Egypt, there's gods in the wilderness, there's a god of the Mount Sinai, there's god in the river, there's god in Canaan. Yahweh will prove that the crossing of the Jordan River will mean that he is Lord over all the earth. That he has power not just in Egypt, in the wilderness, but also in the land of Canaan. Let me continue with verse 13. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan. You will have to, wat to watch this uh, verbiage. This is very interesting. And it says, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So that means when the priests carrying the ark of the covenant steps in the water, what Joshua is saying is that the, the river flow will stop immediately as if the Lord of all the earth rests on the water. That's what it's saying. I like you to pay attention to the verbiage. The Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan. This is very interesting because this was, this is just a repetition of what happened before. I'm going to show you uh, this. But what this means is that as if God himself stepped in the waters of Jordan and the waters stopped. The word rest was first used in Genesis chapter 5. There was a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And finally, it was there was a certain person that was born, and he was named Noah or Noah. The, the word Noah means rest. And, and th this is giving us an understanding that uh, because his father, when Noah was born, his father said, this, this child will give us rest. There was no rest before Noah. Remember, the, the only reference that we have, the major reference, is that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And they have been vagabond ever since. They have no permanent address, so to speak. No permanent address, NPAs. So that the birth of Noah will give them rest from the curse of the land, so to speak. Now, make a mental picture. I'd like to be fluent in images. Um, who among you take pictures? Yes, all of us. We love pictures. We take Love taking selfies. Now, I'd like you to be fluent in images. Mental pictures. 
make a mental picture of Noah inside the ark. There was flood. It was raining outside. And everyone is dead because of the flood. Can you make a men mental picture of that? Yes? Noah inside the ark with his family. It's raining outside, pouring. Everybody's dead. The presence of God was with Noah inside the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so that's a, go a good picture. Now, I want to give you another image, another mental picture. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Watch this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, again. In the beginning, waters... The Spirit of God, the presence of God. All good? Noah, waters, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Are you getting it? Is there a connection here? Now, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Just like the Ark of the Covenant, bearing the presence of God was hovering over the flood. Now, picture Joshua chapter 3. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant was on top of the waters of Jordan. Creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Noah, the ark, of the ark, was hovering over the flood. Joshua chapter 3, the Ark of the Covenant was on top of the waters of Jordan. Same picture altogether, but different scenario. What we're saying here is that when you read the scriptures, you will have to pay attention to images because those images are pointing to something in the future. They are all connected together. These are not accidentals, non-related non things. These are related things, in fact. What they symbolize is the presence of God. Now, by this time, the flow of the water was cut off. Now, listen to Joshua as he phrased it in verse 13. He said, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan. Isn't it amazing? As if God himself, the Lord of all the earth, is resting his feet on top of the Jordan River. That's what he's saying. Why? why? But why did God have to stop the flow of the river? Now, they can build boats, or they can wait for the, for the water to subside, and they can cross. You know, that's what people do. But why would God have to stop the flow of water? There are four things. Number one, this supernatural phenomenon of stopping the flow of water with the Ark of the Covenant was for the people to see, the second generation to see, that God is alive and is with them. Remember, they have not witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the new generation, and they will witness anew that God is alive and is with them. Number two, it was an assurance to Joshua. God has been saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2, be courageous because I will be with you. This is an assurance to Joshua that it was not by the power of Moses that they were able to cross from Egypt to the wilderness. It will be also the power of God, not Moses, that they will be able to cross from the wilderness unto the promised land. Number three, by looking at the ark, the ark is in front of them, ahead of them for about one mile. God wanted to make sure that the Ark of the Covenant takes central role in their quest for the promised land. In fact, they were instructed to, to, look, to look in front because the Ark of the Covenant was in front of them. And all the people who were watching, when the priests who are bearing the Ark of the Covenant step in the water and the flow of the water stopped, their eyes must be on that scenario. 
God must take the central role. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God as if God was king in front of them. And number four and last would be if the crossing of the Red Sea, remember last Sunday we said that Rahab testified that they were so afraid when they heard about the crossing of the Red Sea that God split the water into two. Remember, this is a, a very strange phenomenon. Now, if the crossing of the Red Sea sent chilling effects on the residents of Jericho, what more will happen to them if they al also hear that God stopped the flow of the water of Jordan? That means whatever courage is left inside of them will melt away. This will be a good assurance for the people of Israel at this point. It will establish an understanding that Yahweh can part waters of Jordan and he can destroy the illegitimate gods of Canaan. Now the story concludes with verse 17. It says, Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. They are in the middle of the river now, but there's no flow of water. The priests, or the Ark of the Covenant, is in the middle of the river. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over Jordan. This is amazing. Now, you must be asking, why is this important? Why, how is this related to me? When you turn to the Gospel of Mark, and you understand this by opening the chapter, you find Jesus in chapter 1 going to the Jordan River, the same spot, going to John the Baptist and being baptized. See, there's a, there's a big connection between the crossing of the Jordan and the baptism of Jesus. Now, you have heard and probably read about this long time ago, but you might not have put the connection here. See, I'm going to show you the connection. Joshua chapter 3, crossing of the Jordan, Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. Uh, let me just give you three things that are important here. Number one, Jesus taught the law. He embodied the law. He was the walking, talking Torah law. In fact, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's the law. Second, in Mark chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people. You go further, Mark chapter 8, he fed another 4,000 people. His last meal with his disciples, he said, this is my body, which is for you. In fact, he claimed to be the bread of life, the bread from heaven. Number three, in Mark chapter 15, we were told that the dead body of Jesus rose from the grave and it was taken up to heaven. Those three things are similar to what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside the, of the Ark of the Covenant again? Tablets of stones, the law. Number two, the pot of manna. Number three, the staff of Aaron. All those three things were embodied in Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant containing those three articles, Jesus did and claimed to be the law, the pot of manna, the bread from heaven, the staff of Aaron, the resurrection of the dead. See, Jesus Christ was the sort of Ark of the Covenant in his time when he was baptized in the Jordan River. He was the presence of God himself. Can you see the connection here? Let me give you another passage here. It's in Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, and this is what exactly happened in the baptism of Jesus. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
Only this, repeat this one. Because we tend to breathe rapidly, but look at the verbiage. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, as if violently being torn open. We just know from Matthew, Luke, and John that the heavens what was open. But Mark is saying that the heaven was torn open and the spirit descending like a dove. Now, from the time of the exile, we understand up to the time of Jesus, the people were in exile. So the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Ark of the Covenant was taken to Babylon. And God seemed to have abandoned them. And so Isaiah prayed like this. Isaiah 63, verses 15 to 17. He said, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. I'm going to skip verse 16. This is what he said in verse 17. This is very chilling. He said, O Lord, why have you make us wander from your ways? And harden our heart so that we fear you not. He said, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. What Isaiah is saying is, God, please come back to Israel. Restore us once again. Because the presence of God apparently was not in Israel anymore. The word for that is Ichabod. The presence of God has departed. Isaiah is praying to, for God to come back to Israel. And then we continue that reading. And you... Uh, enters Isaiah 64, verse 1. This is what he said, the first phrase. He said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The word rend is also similar to the word torn. He's asking, Lord, would you please come down? Would you please rend the heavens like the heaven is the veil? Please look down and come, come here. See, the verbiage for rending the heavens is exactly what Mark wrote in chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens was torn open, as if God rent the heavens. That single veil that, you know, that makes him not exposed to the people. The heavens was torn, as if God unveiled himself publicly. Now, what's fascinating is the fact that the word torn or tore or rend will be used two more times in the book of Mark. Number one, it was used when the high priest tore his robes when he was asking Jesus, who are you? Are you the son of God? And Jesus answered him with a positive note, and he tore his robes, and he said, blasphemy. That's going to be one of the last times. The last time that the mention of the word torn was when the curtain of the temple was torn into two, and Jesus breathed his last. Are you following the story? Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens. And when Jesus was baptized, the heavens was torn open. And the, and, the, and the high priest tore his robes as if resigning from his official duty as the high priest. And finally, the curtain of the temple was torn into two. But this means that when you read the scriptures, you start with Joshua, uh, and then you end up with another Joshua. Jesus is Joshua also in Aramaic. And you get no other conclusion but the conclusion of the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross looking at Jesus, looking at the dead body of Jesus, and he exclaimed, truly this must be the Son of God. In fact, this is what he said in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw it this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. 
Now, this Roman centurion is Rome's official representative and sworn to the lordship of Caesar. He understood who Caesar is. Caesar is divine. He's the son of Augustus. This guy, the emperor of Rome, is the lord of all the earth. And when he said that Jesus is the son of God, he was skipping ship. He was as if renunciating the divinity and lordship of Caesar. Now, how is this related to us? How is the crossing of the Jordan and the baptism of Jesus related to us in any way? The founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence died long time ago. But their legacy lives on. In fact, every 4th of July, we relive the moment. We, we do a lot of things. And we identify with them even though none of us were directly related to them. Most of us here are immigrants. I would say that in the same way, the crossing of the Jordan and the baptism of Jesus is a sort of declaration of who God is. In the crossing of the Jordan, it was declared that God, Yahweh, is a living God. In the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven himself, from the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. It's a declaration so that if you bring those two together, this is sort of a declaration for us. In the same way, when you are baptized in the water, you are declaring also publicly who you are in Christ. That's why your name is changed. You are baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. You became a Christian. You declare it to the world. See, Joshua crossing of the Re uh, Jordan River is a declaration. The baptism of Jesus was a declaration too. See, the baptism of Jesus was sort of a, a declaration and a deal. It was a declaration of who he really is and what he intends to do. When the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son who am I well pleased, the father is declaring who he is and what he will do. Sort of a book end. From the beginning, the baptism to the very end, when he breathed his last, the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. As if that means whatever happened in between proves that he is the son of God. So what does it mean to you to say that Jesus is the son of God? That, that means whatever we believe about him, that means whatever he did has something to do with that declaration, Jesus is the son of God. The reason why he was opposed and declared guilty in the Sanhedrin was related to that declaration, he's the son of God. The reason you decided to become a Christian was because of that declaration, Jesus is the son of God. Not just you want to go to heaven, but you're declaring something when you believe. The reason why all of us chose Christianity over all religions is because of that claim of Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. See, let's look, look at this way. Our liturgy, what we do in church, is a declaration of what we believe. Whatever we do here, everything that we do here, in fact, is a declaration of what we believe. What are those things? When we go through baptism, we identify ourselves with the crossing of Jordan in the baptism of Jesus Christ. When we celebrate the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, we identify ourselves with the original disciples who shared the meal with Jesus on his last night. When the priests entered the temple to burn incense, our elders too come here in front and enter the temple and offer prayers. That's the equivalent of burning incense. When we come to church, 
on Sunday to sing praises to God, I hope you sing, we mirror the coming of the people of Israel to the temple and burn animals. Isn't it what it says in Romans 12.1? Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. So when the people of Israel in the Old Testament burnt animals as offering to God, we too come to church, sing praises. These are living offering. So that's why it's important that you worship. So by implication, that means when a Christian doesn't go to church in the context of corporate worship, he misses the opportunity to enter the temple to worship. If we do not participate in the Lord's Supper, that means we miss the privilege of corporately sharing the meal and remembering the most significant sacrifice in history. As much as, it's, as individually we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but when the church gathers, the presence of God is in our midst. The church is the new temple of God because the church gathered is the church in worship. And we owe God our worship. Would you say amen to that? Now, beloved, worship is never an option. Worship is never an option. If worship is an act of love, then worship is an obligation that we must willingly give. Now, very interestingly, the greatest of all commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. It, it sound, sometimes sounds like contradiction. To love God willingly, but it's sort of a obligation. Parents do not really obligate their children to love me, love me. But we know children that the way to honor our parents is to love our parents, to obey them. In the same way with God, the greatest of all commandment is to love God. And this is why there was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Why is God so pleased with Jesus? Because he loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind. That is best expressed in worship. And lest we forget, worship is our most enjoyable duty. Beloved, I really hope that when you sing, you'll enjoy it. Do you enjoy it? Because if you don't enjoy it, then that's really a tragedy. Now, have you ever felt uh, hanging out or going on a date with your family or significant other and at the end of the day, you felt that it's nothing more than a duty. You didn't enjoy it. If that's the case with our relationship with God when coming to church, if, if coming to church is just an obligation, then that's a tragedy. See, think about it. The privilege of worship is what Adam and Eve lost when they ate the proverbial apple. After the garden, after that, the garden was guarded by the cherubim. See, the privilege of worship was one of the reasons why Jesus died on the cross and came back to life so he could open the door again for us so that we can come back to the Garden of Eden and be with God in constant fellowship with God in worship. Think about this. What could have happened if Adam and Eve did not disobey God? They could have had a, a very enjoyable relationship with God without having to go out from the garden. I mean, they have everything they, they want. Everything that they need was in there. Imagine what Jesus did so that we can have the privilege of going back to that promised land, that garden where the presence of God is. When the church worships together, like the crossing of the Jordan and the baptism of Jesus, 
our worship to brothers and sisters become a declaration that Jesus is alive and he's coming back. Would you say amen to that? I have always been fascinated by how these stories are connected to one another. And when I read and reread, in fact, I bought uh, a Bible comic book. This is a, a three-part comic book, and I enjoy reading them. Because I can see the connection of every story. My challenge to you is this. We find our meaning, our purpose, our significance in the story. The more we read the story, the more we are drawn to the story, the more we can see how we are part of the story of God. And in this story, God is saying He loves us and He wants us to worship Him because we owe God our worship. And when we worship, we are declaring Jesus Christ is alive and He's coming back. Maybe there are very few of us here right now. Nevertheless, this church is a testimony every Sunday morning to the city of Pembroke Pines that we are a church declaring Jesus Christ is alive and He's coming back soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are Lord of all the earth and we declare that you are alive. We declare that you are powerful and over all the gods and those pretending to be gods, you are, there's nothing like you. You are unique and we declare too, just like the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. Although he saw the violence, he saw the death of Jesus, but he did not see the criminal dying on the cross. What he saw was the Son of God. Father, as we wrestle with this, I pray that you will reveal yourself more to us so that we will understand better what it means to call you our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.